0: The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened, for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, Clare. Before I start, uh, an announcement of um, something that's starting this week that I'd love to extend an invitation to. Connect Central is a... A fortnightly central home group that's going to take place here at St. Michael's starting on Wednesday fortnightly through to Christmas it's sort of a home group for people between home groups so if you're new and you haven't yet been sort of allocated a home group um, this is for you uh, do come along um, and if you have any questions come and find me at the end um, but it'll be a, a, an informal time there'll be time of uh drinks and nibbles, um, a bit of worship, um, Bible talk, and, uh, and small groups. So if that's uh, a blessing to you, then please do come. Let's pray uh, as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time now to sit under your word. We ask that by your spirit, um, I would speak, that we would listen, that we would together be encouraged and equipped to be witnesses, effective witnesses for you. Amen. We've all had that honeymoon feeling, one way or another, whether it's the new car, the new job, the new place. Maybe you've just returned from a literal honeymoon, uh, or from, uh, as the case may be, your second or third mini-moon. We've all had that experience of... uh, the high of of a new thing, that heady infatuation, something new. There comes a point, though, where we land back with a crash, a bang, and a wallop, and we have to ask, what then? So far as we've begun our journey through Acts, all has gone well. The Holy Spirit has come. Witnessing has begun. The church is growing Things are going well until we hit this passage. This is a key moment in the life of the early church. Will the disciples commit to Jesus in the face of persecution or will they cut and run when things get a bit hard? Very early on in Acts, the disciples were told that they would be Jesus' witnesses from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Jesus reiterated his great commission from the end of Matthew's gospel where he said, go and make disciples of all nations. And isn't it amazing that he should want to share in this life-transforming ministry that desire to be reconciled to us and us to him, that he would empower us and promise to be with us even to the end of the age. It's like, uh, you know, superstar Sportsman Federer asking us to teach a tennis lesson with him he doesn't need us at all and we'd be massively underqualified but it would be great fun it'd be a huge privilege to join in with him so this is crunch time this is the kind of moment that defines us that defines the disciples that defines the early church a world cup final is it coming home Are we disciples who are going to make disciples, or are we not? Because if we are, this is the moment to step up, to be those disciples. And when we think about it, who doesn't want to be among them? Who doesn't want to say that they stood up for Jesus when things got tough? But the reality is, pretty much all of us find witnessing hard. And one reason we find it hard is that there's opposition If everyone that we talked to Jesus about, um, if everyone that we talked to um, about Jesus, if everyone we mentioned him to gave their lives to him there and then, it would be easy, wouldn't it? We'd all be encouraged. And there'd there'd be no chance, there'd be no need for me to speak this evening on how to be effective witnesses. But there is opposition. There's a big difference between what we should want to do to witness and what we actually want to do, which is anything but. And if you've been at the morning service or heard um, any of our sermons on Jonah, then often we're more like Jonah running away than Joshua running into God's calling. One of our values in this new season at St. Michael's is letting the world know. Let the world know. And this evening we're going to look at three tools from this passage modelled by Peter and John that are given to us to be effective witnesses for Jesus, to let the world know. Now our three tools are these. Commitment to his message, empowerment by his spirit, and a decision to speak up for him. So let's dive in. I hope you enjoyed the, uh, the passage as it was read. It is, I think, almost comical, Um, In the, the way that the story is told and the way these disciples can't be shut down, it's comical and it's hugely encouraging. And the first tool that we're given is commitment to Jesus' message. The religious leaders and the captain of the temple police come up to Peter and John. And what is it they don't like? What is it that's got under their skin? Well, verse two, we're told they're greatly disturbed. Because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Note that has always been a challenging message to share and a challenging message to receive. You might be wondering why the religious authorities find it so problematic. Wasn't the resurrection written in their their script? Well, some thought it was. The Pharisees, for example, they believed in the resurrection. But other strands, such as the Sadducees, who are mentioned in tonight's passage, they read the Old Testament differently. For them, any talk of resurrection was highly suspect, as it is for most people today, most of our friends. Rising from the dead isn't something that anyone had experienced or proclaimed prior to Jesus. And it wasn't just that this talk of resurrection caused such fury and opposition. It was that the the Jesus sect, this cult, wasn't going away quite as quietly as the Sadducees would have liked. Bear in mind, they had Jesus killed only a few weeks before, and they hoped that would be the end of it. So the authorities march out with their armed police and drag Peter and John off to spend the night in jail. I don't suppose any of us have had that experience. But if you've committed to this message, to Jesus' message, and if you're facing opposition for it, then you're in good company. Those who've committed to Jesus' message have always faced opposition. And there are charities, one of them, Open Doors, who work specifically to support those who have committed to Jesus' message and are paying the highest price. For that today however verse 4 Luke reassures us that despite this turn of events many who heard the message believed so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000 and that's a huge encouragement Jesus promise stands fast the spirit is clearly empowering his followers to witness there in Jerusalem I'd like to share with you the story of a man named Joseph. Uh, Joseph is a Maasai warrior. And one day, he was walking along a hot, dirty African road. And he met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Saviour. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share that same good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way his had. But to his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Does sound very much like stories we us, doesn't it? Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a waterhole. There, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception he'd received from people he'd known all his life he decided he must have left something out of the the story so after rehearsing the message of Jesus that he'd first heard he decided to go back and share his faith once again Joseph limped into the circle of hearts and began to proclaim Jesus he died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God he pleaded again he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him reopening wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third and probably the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him began to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. It's a weighty, but an incredible story. Commitment to Jesus' message is our first tool for effective witnessing. He's worth committing to. Peter and John knew that. Joseph knew that. We don't need to be surprised by our position. Jesus promises it for those who commit to His message. And of course he faced it himself in all its ugliness and brutality. So if we commit to his message, and especially if we encounter opposition, we are in the very best company. What does committing to his message look like for us today? Where is their pressure not to speak of Jesus? Well, let's pause for a moment. Tomorrow, Monday, back at work, hanging out with colleagues or friends after work, where do you expect to find, to come across Opposition? Where is there going to be that challenge to commit to Jesus' message? As we catch up with colleagues after the weekend, let's commit to the message. As we have dinner with friends or family, let's commit to the message. As we do our thing, as we relax, as we have fun, let's commit to the message. Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's particularly difficult to witness today. But it is comforting to know that it has never been unopposed. Opposition will be easier if we commit up front. So, the second tool for an effective witness is empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And we see this beautifully, clearly in verse 8. And this is an amazing message, it's an amazing tool that we're given, it's revolutionary. We see in verses 8 to 13 that being an effective witness is not about education or status or any of those worldly things. It's about being with Jesus. It's about being filled with his spirit. In verse 13 we heard, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus you see this courage and it might be easy to write yourself out but you don't get this courage at theological college being an effective witness isn't just for those who've had a university education it's for any and all who've spent time with Jesus it's open to all of us and in verse 8 we're told Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and you'd better believe it you'd think you might think he did this in his own strength But think again, consider it. Peter and John, two of Jesus' inner circle, faced the exact same court that Jesus faced. The same people who had treated Jesus to a sham trial, who'd found false witnesses and handed him over to the Romans to be executed. Peter and John faced that same group, that same court. And yet, filled with the Spirit, they testified, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. His name is the only one under heaven in which salvation is found. They had no idea what faith awaited them, whether they'd be following in Jesus' footsteps. But they had spent time with Jesus, they had committed to the message, and they were empowered by his Spirit. A more recent example, um, a, a man at a giant D.L. Moody. Um, you might have heard of him. He was born into a bricklayer's family. His father died when he was four, leaving his mother Betsy to raise nine children. His mother never encouraged him to read the Bible, and he only acquired the equivalent of a fifth grade education. He struck out on his own at 17 and sold shoes at his uncle's shoe store in Boston an unschooled, ordinary man. At 18, Moody heard about the love Jesus had for him and asked him to be Lord of his life. This sparked his career as an evangelist touring both America and the British Isles. The 19th century American evangelist and publisher was described as earthy, unlettered, a dynamo of energy. Sounds rather like Peter and John, doesn't it? Moody had spent time with Jesus and been filled with his spirit. And that's something that is open, accessible to all of us this evening. By the Spirit, God uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. Courage isn't about education, it's about spending time with Jesus, about being empowered by His Spirit. And that's what floors the religious council. And that is an encouragement for us today. Have we been with Jesus? Have we been with Him ever? Have we been with him recently? Has our first love for him grown cold? Or are we just weary after months of lockdown and COVID and tumultuous circumstances? Being with Jesus was clear, easy enough for the disciples. They walked with him, they talked with him, they reclined with him and ate with him. But what does it look like for us? Well, I think it looks more like that than we sometimes think. Just doing life with him, chatting with him as we go about our day, trusting that he really is with us and for us and cares deeply for us. We can intentionally spend time with him in um, God's word and in prayer, In fellowship with other believers and we can practice the presence as we go about Uh, we can practice the presence of God as we go about the everyday it needn't be one over the others but a tapestry of all the above have we been with Jesus just take a moment to answer that for yourself when was the last time you were with him Being with Jesus fills us with conviction and confidence and courage. And Jesus promises that in crisis moments, his spirit will give us the words that we need. He foretold in Luke 21. They will seize you and persecute you. They'll hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you'll be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. And they'll put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Courage and confidence come from being with Jesus, trusting his promises and being empowered by his spirit. The third tool that we see that we're given in this passage for um, effective witnessing is a decision to speak up for Jesus. Why? Because, verse 12, we have become convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. Convinced, as Peter declares, that there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And it's great, isn't it? The disciples have this sort of reckless abandon in the face of all this religious pomp and authority. And they, they fire back. Obey God or man, which is right in God's eyes? For us, there isn't necessarily someone telling us not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But my experience is there is pressure to stay silent. When asked about our faith, we can feel the need to beat around the bush and sort of talk about Christianity or, or faith kind of in general and sort of just leave to the side, at least for, you know, to start with the specifics of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? Or is it just me? There's a temptation not to cut to the chase or to speak in generalities when people ask us what we did at the weekend or why we made certain life decisions. Why did we choose that job or why did I pursue ordination? Why did we help out on a certain church team or why did we give up a Saturday to hang out at church with our church family? What we know is because we're following Jesus, we're trying to live his way. But it's easy to dress it up, to obscure something of that. And just allow our friends to fill in the blanks, rather than being straight. I think we're all in the same boat. But in verse 20, Peter and John say, As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Seen or heard. And this is a totally different tune to Peter's denials, only a couple of months before. Their declaration that salvation is found in no one else isn't simply an academic assertion. It's relational. Remember, they said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter and John, these close friends of Jesus, became convinced that he was the gift of God to us for our salvation. That he wasn't just a good guy or provocative teacher, but Lord and Messiah. Think of someone you've got to know recently. I'm sure normally when we get to know someone, the closer we get, the more we see their flaws. But the closer Peter and John came to Jesus, the more convinced they were that he was God's gift to us for our salvation. Wow, isn't that remarkable? I heard a couple of uh, friends, I think a story that I heard when I was at Ridley. Um, decided to go to a festival, um, I think a, a pagan festival, slightly edgy, slightly provocative, um, and they sought permission explicitly. You know, they said up front, you know, we're, we're Christians. You know, we'd like to have a Christian stall among the other stalls. Um, they, you know, they decided to, to go there and to speak of Jesus, but they were told, you can, you can come on one condition, that you're not the first to use the name Jesus. What would you have done? Well, they decided to go and trusted that somehow God would make a way for them to speak of Jesus. So they acquiesced. To their surprise, day one, they're setting up their stall and another stall owner comes over, encounters these two Christians and is overcome. She shouts, Jesus at the top of her voice and runs off. And there you go, the ban is lifted and these Christians were able to speak freely of Jesus to all who came. What is deciding to to speak up for Jesus look like for us? We may have reduced our faith to an intellectual assertion over the weeks, the months, the years, Yes, we believe that Jesus is the one in whom we find salvation. But at the heart of our faith is a person, is a relationship with Jesus Christ. So I want us to think for a moment, perhaps sort of dig sort of a little deeper within. What have we seen and heard? Do we take it for granted? And if we're honest, I think we've all seen or heard something, otherwise we wouldn't be here right now. Even if this is your first time at church, you'll have seen something, heard something. What do you make of it? Are you willing to investigate it? Or are you going to write it off like the Sadducees? I spent a summer in China a few years ago. Um, actually, in Wuhan. I think it was long enough before last uh, well, last year's sort of COVID outbreak to be implicated. But... Um, I was in Wuhan, had a fantastic summer, was looked after by an absolute angel of a young man, um, a PhD student called Yao Guang. Yao Guang was not a Christian, but he did go on an academic trip to the States um, towards the end of my summer. Um, I went traveling in China, he went traveling to the States, and we sort of collided for a weekend before sort of separating our different ways again. And in the taxi between our sort of reunion meal and the train station, he couldn't help but tell me about his trip and how he had experienced something of Jesus' peace. He didn't have all the kind of Christian language, but his experience was such, it was kind of foreign, powerful, meaningful. It was such that he was compelled to speak up and tell me. And he said to me, Sam, I can see why this friend who'd emigrated years before, I can see why he's a Christian. Yeah, I can see why there are Christians over there because you go to these places, these churches and there's such peace. He heard something, he experienced something and he spoke of it. Well, at the other end of the spectrum, there are those of us who can't remember a time where we didn't know Jesus. Those of us who've been Christians as long as we can remember. That includes me. My parents... Are Christians, and I was brought up with Jesus as part of the family, and it is all too easy to forget what a joy, what a privilege it is to know him and how much of a difference he makes. There was never a time I didn't know his love, his forgiveness, the victory that he won um, and that he gives me, shares with me. He gives forgiveness and peace and reconciliation with God. He's given me a heavenly father, an eternal home in which there's a room waiting for me. He gives purpose, a beautiful yet challenging vision of the good life and all the resources to strive for it. Grace when I fail and his spirit to make me strong. What have we seen and heard? What have we experienced of Jesus? What is it that persuaded you, or is persuading you, to listen and to explore? For me, it's the peace I experience in the face of my fears, the love I experience in the face of my insecurities, the freedom of forgiveness I know in Jesus, in the face of my failings. If we've met Jesus and become convinced with Peter and John, that he really is the unique gift to us all through whom we may be saved. There is nothing better than being a faithful and effective witness. These tools were given in this passage to be effective witnesses are commitment to his message, empowerment by his spirit, and a decision to speak up for him. Three tools for all of us this evening. What a joy to acknowledge him before others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus, that there is good news of salvation in him, in his death and in his resurrection. And thank you that in your kindness uh, and in the mystery of your plan, you have asked us to partner with you, to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth and you promise to be with us. We ask for your forgiveness when we have been slow or weary or reluctant or unwilling to speak of your son Jesus. And we ask that you would fill us again with your spirit, that you would enable us to spend time with Jesus this week that we'd be filled with courage and confidence and that you'd encourage us with opportunities to speak of him. In his powerful and beautiful name we pray. Amen.